Hey listeners, I'm Adam, and this is Can I Ask You a Question, a podcast where anyone is welcome to join me for an episode to share their thoughts on a topic of their choice. I'm looking forward to hearing new opinions and perspectives, and hopefully becoming a bit more open-minded along the way. If you're interested in joining me for a future episode, feel free to check out the sign-up link in this episode's description. This episode is brought to you by the Everyday App. Technically, this is an ad, but the Everyday app has honestly been super helpful for me, and I wouldn't partner with a company if I didn't genuinely believe in the product. So, what does the app do? It basically helps you track your habits so that you can see your progress over time. There's a common business saying, what gets measured gets managed. Like I said, it usually applies to businesses, keeping track of things like their sales and customer satisfaction, but I think it's just as relevant for personal goals too. It sounds like a simple concept for an app, but I've personally found it to be super effective in helping create new habits. The app lets you add whatever habits you're currently working on building. For me right now, some of those include reviewing my to-do list each day uh, so that I stay on top of the things I want to get done. Another one is going to the gym, and another one is limiting my time on Twitter to five minutes a day. The app lets you add three habits for free, so you can see if you find it helpful. If you soon realize you want to track more than three habits, like I eventually did, the paid version lets you track unlimited habits and has other cool features, and it's pretty good value in my opinion. There's a link in the episode description that gets you 10% off. All right, let's jump into today's conversation. How does it sound now? Perfect. Okay, now, it's, now it's a lot better. Okay. <laughs> you, yeah, you, you, sound, you sounded like um, a little like Darth Vader there. For oh, a second. really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. Well, thank you for letting me know. That would have been uh, bad. <laughs> yeah, no, you're all good. Uh, can you hear me uh, all right um, through yeah. through my sound? Yeah, crystal clear. All right. Fantastic. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to meet you and I uh, really appreciate you having me. Yeah, great to meet you too. Thanks for mm-hmm. signing up um, and looking looking forward to chatting. Um, Absolutely. I just want, your, so your webcam is not on. You don't have to turn it on, but I just wanted to make mm-hmm. sure. Ah, there we go. Yeah, there we go. Okay. I didn't uh, know if you... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Perf- uh, nice perfect. To yeah. uh, vid- nice to see you. That's right. Um, uh, video is fine. Uh, so you can add that to um, to YouTube or wherever, whichever platform you use. Thanks. Yeah, I'll put it on YouTube too. Some people like watching as opposed to just listening. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, I'm I'm trying to kind of contemplate like how I want to do my video thing in the future. I haven't made a decision about that, but, um, uh, I'm, I'm learning along the way. So. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to chatting about, uh, I guess like Chinese tech products like TikTok, but also yep. I want to, I want to ask you a bit about your podcast. I admire your consistency of putting out <laughs> one a, a week for a while. So I want to ask you if you have any, <laughs> any advice for that. Absolutely. Uh, it's uh, been, uh, it's been quite a, quite a project. I, I still kind of can't believe I've been able to keep up with this for about 10 months now. So uh, we're coming up to the one year mark and uh, it's, it's, uh, I'll say once a, a week goes by quickly when you launch, when you put out something, oh my gosh, I, I don't think anyone can really understand how fast it goes. Cause it's like, once it's out, it's like, all right, on to the next one. You know, yeah. For me. The press is always on. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyways, let's start off with the topic that, uh, that you picked. Um, so I'll start off by just asking the main question, then I'll ask some follow-ups if that's cool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. So the, the main question was, should we have 
concerns around uh, the use of data uh, when using Chinese tech products like TikTok. So mm-hmm. curious your thoughts. Absolutely. Well, the short answer is yes. I do think we should have data concerns with when we use tech products from China. Uh, there's really kind of two main areas uh, I like to start off with. The first is that we need to understand what the Chinese government's psyche is. Now, throughout this conversation, when I mentioned China, I really mean like the Chinese government. Yeah. I think there's quite a bit of distinction between the Chinese government and the Chinese people. The Chinese people really honestly don't have a choice as to what government they want. Um, so just for future reference, uh, when I mentioned China, I really mean this, the government run by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but uh, when we look at the psyche of the Chinese government, there are a number of concerns on uh, right away. The first is really looking at the agenda of the Chinese government. When Mao Zedong took over when he, uh, with 1949, the rise of the Chinese Communist Party, there's, there's one saying that really sticks out to me. Um, he uses, he and his party, I, I would say hijacked Confucius a little bit because they, they really did not have much respect for history. I mean, they went after historical artifacts and all that to try to uh, add the CCP into history. But one quote that they, they claim they try to use uh, to justify their actions is that there can never be two suns in the sky. Uh, this is a translation from a quote from Confucius. And I'd like to start off with that because it shows that China really sees uh, this world of competition, of technological, of innovative environments and, and everything else as one one winner takes all kind of a, a mentality. And so when we see the agenda, when we see what China does uh, with regards to its united front, which is the kind of the main political strategy department, um, what it does to uh, tell their scientists, their engineers, um, anyone who uh, is in a specialty profession, uh, tell, reminding them of what the Chinese Communist Party agenda is um, and be, being able to um, to invest in, um, in resources and, and technologies to try and uh, siphon innovation or try to uh, take IP from other countries. These are all part of a larger agenda that the Chinese Communist Party has. And so when we look at using tech products from China, we have to recognize that it's not just a tech product from Huawei uh, or something like WeChat or TikTok. Uh, It's a kind of arm of the CCP. And we know that it's it's never going to be independent from the Chinese Communist Party's agenda. The second thing has to deal with more of the, the privacy aspect, which is that China's tech standards are nowhere near the kind of standards that we have. They don't have a bill of rights. They don't have this culture of protecting people's privacy uh, because it is, you know, something that it is a granted freedom to the people. What uh, China wants to do is wants to clamp down on free speech. Uh, it wants to export its technologies or at least the technologies that they brand themselves with, you know, some of the stuff is probably probably stolen through IP theft and everything. Um, but they want to impose Chinese ideology. They want to show that China is the real leader and not the United States. Um, and they use these tech standards to try and control that narrative within the domestic population, but also increasingly over the last several years, um, try to influence other countries, make them very, very dependent on Chinese goods and Chinese services. Um, and that way they'll be able to promote this CCP agenda that they've been trying to put out. So 
uh, in a nutshell, you know, the, these two areas really looking at the Chinese Communist Party's agenda and also looking at the, the so-called tech standards that they have really is uh, both of kind of the same uh, origin. And uh, when we discuss privacy, you know, when we have our conversation, I'd love to kind of go more into some other things, but this is really the kind of the crux and the, the issue uh, that I think is going to be very, very critical, especially when we think about some of the violations that have already happened and some of the violations that uh, members of Congress and other political leaders are concerned about when it comes to usage of Chinese technological products. Interesting. And mm-hmm. in terms of, so you can go the route of, of a ban or you could go the route of, I guess, trying to educate the public on the potential risks and concerns and, and let, letting them make the decision. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on kind of those two routes and the pros and cons of each? And curious if you have a, an opinion on, on which approach makes more sense in, in the case like this with Chinese tech products. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's a combination of, the, of those two, knowing that both have limitations. And I'll, call, I'll start with the ban first. Ban- banning something like TikTok and WeChat, which is something that was explored by the Trump administration, that was actually enacted by the Trump administration last year, yeah. uh, is definitely a uh, tall order when it comes to the magnitude of how big TikTok is, how big WeChat is. Um, and in terms of, but the implementation though uh, can be definitely be doable on certain levels. For example, you know, you're if you're uh, if you're writing an executive order, if you're President Trump, you can impose an executive order uh, banning TikTok from government devices. And this is kind of the start of something where the federal government can do something to sh- show that they that it too has concerns about data privacy. Um, the the Pros, obviously, meaning that you know you can have some safer government devices. Um, you can uh, obviously show that stance and that political stance is obviously beneficial to lawmakers uh, and to the international stage. The problem is that it can only take one device to be able to compromise, you know, to be able to leak out information that's not supposed to be leaked out. Um, and this kind of cat and mouse sort of strategy is not a long-term solution. So I. I would be someone in support of a ban on, say, government devices. Banning it entirely is, while it's something that I would want to do, however, with the legal constraints and with the fact that you need to be able to have a concentrated approach as to what the problem with TikTok and WeChat are and other technological devices are, that really is the crux. And that's what you need to find out. You need to figure out what exactly the foreign influence is and where these sources are coming from so that you can track them. A told out a complete ban without any kind of plan afterwards is not going to work, which kind of leads me to the other uh, other side of the thing, which is the education part. Yeah, I think the education part is going to have to come from things like, you know, ed- education as in, you know, kind of the the public message, the message that lawmakers put out, uh, the practices that um, government officials have. It's it's a bit difficult to maybe kind of weed into some of the other sectors. Now, it is possible that, for example, the federal government can say, if there are any contractors out there who are working with uh, ByteDance, which obviously work, uh, it owns TikTok, um, with 
TikTok or WeChat or other entities, they can say, well, we have to put restrictions on, on there, or we have to reconsider our contract options. That's something that the private sector could be concerned about if, if it's, if there's, we're talking about a lot of money, a lot of cooperation. Um, but on the educational side of things, uh, it's quite difficult because uh, it's uh, difficult to kind of implement that into like a, an academic curriculum per se. Uh, but through certain means of with the use of social media and the fact that we are depending so much on authority uh, in social media, when we see the U.S. government saying that you know, they're concerned about TikTok and WeChat and other and other products from Chinese tech, that might prompt uh, some kind of concern amongst the consumers here in the United States and perhaps across the world that there's something really, really fishy about this. Um, and not to mention that there's been government action from the federal trade commission um, lately in like 2019, when they find uh, TikTok almost $6 million for violating uh, a basically a data, per- data privacy act for minors under the age of 13. It was a TikTok was found to have been collecting data on young children and they were almost, they were fined that amount of money. And even in, in 2020, uh, the DOJ and the FTC started be, uh, started investigations into whether or not TikTok is complying. Um, so that's kind of the educational part. But one thing I want to do add to my answer is the the focus part. I mentioned earlier about having that foreign influence focus. President Biden recently, earlier this month, announced that he was going to reverse the executive order uh, from President Trump yeah. uh, about TikTok and WeChat. I I kind of going back to my earlier approach. I believe that there should be, you know, obviously the federal government ban on these kinds of devices for the for the first step. Um, so on this particular front, on that end, I'm not totally in agreement with this executive order. But I do, I, I am interested in what the Biden administration has in plan when he has directed the Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo um, to look at what the foreign influence is going on with regards to TikTok, TikTok and WeChat. Because if we don't know where these sources of foreign influence are coming from, we're never going to be able to, to have these national security solutions. Uh, so I'm interested to see what, what kind of comes up. Uh, but it's certain these developments with regards to you know, the education part, but also the uh, banning part of the kind of implementation part. This is going to be very interesting to see as we kind of move along in the months and years to come. Yeah. And just taking a step back, you have a a bit of a background in U.S.-China relations, right? Yes, I do. Uh, so I did a Master of International Affairs degree at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. So my focus uh, was on intelligence and homeland security, uh, but amongst other subjects too. But uh, I did have a particular interest and focus on the Chinese Communist Party and its affiliated activities uh, in, within China and around the world. And what what got you interested in in U.S. China relations and just international affairs? Well, personally, so my background is that uh, my mother is an, a Taiwanese immigrant, and uh, growing up in a, a family of you know on my dad's side of Eastern European descent and my mother's side of Taiwanese descent, I had a really early interest in how the world order was going on, especially when I was entering high school. But when I was younger, I had learned English and Mandarin alongside each other. So I grew up learning to speak English and Mandarin fluently. And what's interesting is that, you know, learning about Taiwan has been very unique to me because after being in Taiwan for uh, going, having been to Taiwan so many times, you really see 
uh, how different Taiwan is compared to China, especially when it comes to um, certain freedoms. The uh, the appreciation for American influence in Taiwan, I think, is quite extraordinary. Um, if I could illustrate really my kind of my interest in in the U.S.-China relations in one quick story. Yeah. When I was younger in elementary school, I went to this uh, school that uh, had English and Mandarin classes, which was really, really beneficial, especially at an early age. Is this in the um, States? Yes, that's right. Uh, and uh, one day, my family learned that they were going to teach instead of the traditional Chinese, which has been around for 5,000 years or so, uh, they were going to teach the simplified Chinese, which is the form of Chinese that was promoted by the Chinese Communist Party. And and the defense for them was, uh, for the Chinese Communist Party was like, well, it's going to be easier for people who are illiterate, et cetera, et cetera. But my family was not going to let me go through classes that taught simplified Chinese. We felt that uh, this was not the right course of of action for us to go in terms of learning the language it's important it was important for my family to understand that there's there's a and not just a linguistic beauty of traditional chinese uh, but also it really started me thinking having me think about uh, what the role of the united states was or what the role of china was and later on years to come when i was able to finally get engaged in studies about U.S.-China relations, I reflect on that time when I was I left that school because of the, Chinese, uh, the change in Chinese. And I felt that if I need to make a, a, a difference in the world, I, I want it to be in, the, in this realm of U.S.-China relations because it really is so important that we keep onto the values that make America unique, but also defend the values abroad as much as we can. Um, and I think Taiwan is an embodiment of not just U.S. support across the many decades, you know, since uh, even before the Taiwan Relations Act in 1979, but also represents um, what it means when you have um, countries around the world that have grown so much, have grown economically, have become more prosperous, more free because of the common, uh, so many, many common values of democracy and freedom and opportunity and justice. What do you, what do you think the future of U.S.-China relations might look like? Do you think, like, what do you think it will take for China to become a democracy in the future? Like, I, I look at, I've seen some, some charts showing, I guess, the percentage of the world, percentage of countries in the world that are democratic, and it seems to be increasing, which is a good sign. But uh, any thoughts on on what the future might look like? I know anything's going to be a guess, but. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, uh, unfortunately, I don't think China will ever be a democracy. I don't think they'll, it'll, they'll ever be anywhere near what we tried to do a few, uh, just a few decades ago. You know, when we admitted the uh, China into the uh, WTO in 2001, uh, we tried to have them engage more economically. We tried to ship factories over uh, because we felt that with the cheap labor and everything, we we're able to focus more on services and we didn't need the manufacturing. But then as we fast forward now to to really the last few years, we've seen that we've made a number of mistakes on that front. We've not only given China a lot of leverage on uh, ma- the manufacturing of so many goods, almost any kind of good you could think of. Um, but we've also allowed them to uh, really take uh, take advantage of our innovation and of our 
inventive culture um, and to, to use that against us, unfortunately. Um, I just, I don't have confidence, again, not to say that the, the Chinese people don't deserve democracy or anything. They do. And like, as a matter of principle, I believe that any people in any country should have these fundamental rights. It's just that in the current state of, of affairs, you can't have the Chinese Communist Party staying there and and putting democracy in the same sentence. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't, they just certainly don't believe in that. And it's never, I don't think it's ever going to happen uh, as much as we want them. It's, it's idealistic. Uh, I, I would, I would say, um, but what we can do is we can, uh, we can show, we can show countries around the world why this model, the CCP model doesn't work. Why in the end they will go after people, a country's money and their wealth and their prosperity and not for the, betterment of you know international relations or of of freedoms and so uh, uh it, it it seems like a pessimistic view but I, I do think it's a real re- realistic view because uh, you know china has been uh for as it's been a tumultuous hundred plus years uh, when you think about how the main uh excuse me the Qing dynasty was around only about 100 years ago until that whole thing toppled off and then the chinese communist party took over and when the CCP says that in 2049, 100 years after the end of the Chinese Civil War, really the start of Mao and of the that that generation, when you think about how they want to put out that goal of being that dominant power, of being the dominant economic and cultural and security power of the world, when Xi Jinping says that in, in, in recent speech, you know, he's been president for for almost 10 years now, when he's sitting, when he echoes the words that they're going to be a great nation dream, you know, something along the lines of that to, um, to proclaim to the world that China is back and that this growth, this huge growth of the last few decades has been a representation of the CCP's supposed success. Those things really, really concern me. And I, I hope that it's a concern for everybody else too, uh, because the, the, as much, as much as the United States gets criticism for what it does abroad, um, the, there, there simply is no, better alternative in my view other than the united states as as leading power um china is never going to ever ever consider any other country's interest when it comes to freedoms and prosperities and it, it most certainly uh, will just will not change as the saying goes uh, a um uh was a like a leper can't change its spots so you know like uh, people's innate natures and the histories and all that are just never going to change but what's i and maybe I need to read more history, but what's what's caused uh, dictatorships to become democracies for, for countries that have in the past few decades become democracies? Do you know what's what's driven it and and why why do you think the same couldn't happen for China in the future? Yes, yeah, so it really I think it's a combination of you know the proportionality of like what you know if you take like say the united states influence on say taiwan as an example um you know t- taiwan obviously it did used to be a dictatorship i'll use that as an example it did used to be a dictatorship how long ago uh this one uh, martial law was um di- was in effect until 1987 i believe oh, wow. it was yeah so technically now chiang kai-shek who was the main dictator the main guy who was in charge of all this he died in 75, I believe, but okay. it wasn't revoked till a little bit later on. What, what I think it takes it's is that it takes, you know, a, a some kind of a, a unique 
culture, maybe within the people. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that, you know, there's like an Americanized part of every single culture in the world. Um, but if you take Taiwan as an example, you know, it was a dictatorship, but it had to be detached from China, you know, so it had to have like a unique identity. Um, and in many ways, it, it kind of did after the, um, the, after that part, after the Republic of China was created after 1949. And so it's a really combination of the, the years and decades of, of, of influence. And not to mention, there's a lot of kind of the, the standard, you know, Washington DC sort of thing of lobbying, you know, of intra various different interest groups um, lobbying to have various different economic conditions that favor the United States, but also um, purposely or un unintentionally benefit Taiwan too. Um, and gradually you see, you do see these kind of eventual changes. Now that's not to say that Taiwan is perhaps perfect in every democratic sense. And they've, their first presidential election was really only about 25 years ago. Um, but they, they really have come a long way. And I do believe when it comes to certain dictatorships, not, there's no like one single like package of things that have to happen, but certainly it, what I can definitely say is it takes decades of influence and decades of support um, uh, from the United States or from other countries to build up this, you know, close relationship, but also this idea that a, a place can go from a dictatorship to a more of a democratic society. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, it's complicated, but uh, I, I am, I, I really appreciate you asking a question though, because, you know, there were, there were people who were kind of saying the same thing, you know, when they saw Taiwan and Hong Kong, all those, um, all those countries in the, uh, East Asia rising, they said, well, why can't China do it? Uh, but the reality is that when you look at the trajectory of different parts of the world, there's, there are just certain trends that show an inevitability of some kind of radical change. Um, and China going, being that one country that went through the cultural revolution, you know, that is a very, very big mark that's still in place. The, the remnants of that is still, are still in place. Tiananmen Square is still remnants, remnants of play in place since that tragic incident. Um, these, these things are going to take a, a lot of time. I, I don't, I just say, I just think that in this lifetime, we won't be able to see, um, certainly in this lifetime, probably for many lifetimes, we won't be able to see China become a democracy. If, if China agreed to, stop banning us uh companies or sites like google and facebook mm -hmm. do you think do you think that would be a fair i mean they probably wouldn't do it but i'm just trying right. to think what kind of concessions would we want them to make if if we were to allow uh chinese tech products in the u.s like in your mind what's a fair trade-off you have any thoughts yes that that's a good question. I, I would say, if it, if we were really to look at some of the bits that we could that we hopefully could work with China on, I mean, China obviously wants the market access and everything, and we also want market access. I I don't see how I I can see certain variations of like, for example, you know, Google and other companies have been trying to release some kind, you know, like a Chinese acceptable version of their products and services. Um, I can only see maybe the, at best the an extension of that where, where, you know, China will basically dictate the rules as to what kinds of content could be, um, could be placed. Uh, 
at the end, I would say that the, the main thing barrier, um, and I know that you mentioned that it's, I don't think it's going to be possible. I don't think it's going to be possible either. Uh, the main thing is really the information control. Um, China want, definitely wants to control the information area because they know that if anything significant, uh, that's a criticism of their party, um, a criticism of their actions, if it, that gets, that becomes mainstream, you know, they're they're gonna be in a lot of trouble <laughs> because uh, we've seen already even after COVID, you can imagine like with even with all these restrictions that they placed, there was still for at least for a short while a lot of criticism of the Chinese Communist Party and of that uh, that doctor who warned about COVID of him passing. There was all there was all this um, uh, this flurry of messages of support for him. China looks at that and say, "Whoa, this is this is really bad. We need now. We need to clamp down even more." And so, the, at best, I would say it really has to be a, just an extension of, you know, Chinese uh, Chinese kind of censorship, but maybe branded in an American sense. You know, like oh, it's from Google or it's from YouTube or wherever. Uh, that might that would be the best case scenario, uh, but. It's uh, it's highly likely because obviously the U.S. government's going to step in and say no 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 this is not this is not happening we're not going to let you do something like that where we already have data privacy concerns here even domestically we've we've seen some of the antitrust hearings uh, already that are happening on Capitol Hill um, but uh, it's it's definitely something to explore and and I I, I wish in an ideal world that you know we, countries like the United States and China could get along but you know we're we're talking about very, very different courses of history here and very different ways of thinking. Um, and many of those ways of thinking and lifestyles, not, it's not that they're just divergent. They actually collide. And when you have something like this, it's just not possible to really have, have really an ideal situation when it comes to a trade-off on tech or on other, other forms of trade and other services. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do any books or podcasts or, anything come to mind that you would recommend to learn more about U.S.-China relations? Mm -hmm. I would really explore some of the podcasts that really come from particular think tanks. And I, I don't, I don't know really personally off the top of my head, you know, like the best podcast for like, you know, everything U S China, just because yeah. it kind of crosses so many different sectors. And, uh, but a lot of the DC th based think tanks uh, have some really interesting things. Everything from you know the uh, from, uh, CSIS, Brookings, uh, Wilson Center. Obviously, they they have uh, certain discussions on this. Uh, and then there's some other think tanks that lean one one, one way or another, uh, but I think have really robust conversations. You know, I would say you know Center for New American Security, which is you know probably more moderate, maybe a little bit. Uh, center left, depending on how how you look at things, you know they've uh, they've had conversation about China, but so has uh, the Hudson Institute uh, or Heritage, um, and not to mention there's also certain talks. I, I don't know if they're well, actually, the thing they're available later when they publish it at a later date. But the uh, Library of Congress has done some talks about uh, about U.S. China uh, relations. Uh, so I would start with really the D.C. think tanks. If you kind of think of the big ones, uh, they usually have at least. Um, certain series or certain episodes about U.S.-China relations, uh, but I, I hope that there will be kind of a, a 
kind of a major league sort of forum where you can have these kind of robust debates. But perhaps because of the scale of U.S.-China relationships, the fact that it's such a broad category and every single think tank wants to be the best at it and say, we got to have, we got to really have the best people on for this topic. That's probably why you see this wider array of podcasts that offer uh, discussions and debates about U.S.-China relations. Thanks. You mentioned a few different think tanks. Some of the names sounded familiar to me, but I don't I don't know them well. Any of those that you would suggest starting with that you personally like the best? Sure. I, I, I think a good starting point would be Brookings, just because they really I, I say this because they they really are quite revered in the think tank world, regardless of whether or not you agree or uh on with their kind of uh, experts and talkers and, and, and speakers. But I would start with that. Um, but nice. I would also uh, just real quick. I think when it comes to like the search, right? Like when you start with Brookings um, and you look at uh, the many publications that they put out in regards to China, um, I would really kind of go back and forth, you know. So like go the Hudson Institute, more conservative leaning, go with that, and then maybe going somewhere a little bit different, where you go to Center for New American Security or uh, some other. Um, some other entity that could offer a slight different perspective and have different kinds of speakers. Yeah, that's a good idea. Get different perspectives as opposed to just relying on one. Exactly. Uh, Maybe that's a bit of a nice segue. I wanted to ask you if it's all right about some topics, not specifically around U.S.-China relations, but just that I saw that it seems like you have some interest in. So one of them was uh, political polarization. I think I saw that you're interested in that. Absolutely. Um, what are, <laughs> I guess this is a big question, but what are, what do you think are some of the keys to reducing political polarization? It seems like you've thought about this quite a bit. Absolutely. That, well, that's a career in itself, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll kind of uh, list uh, the kind of my top three for now, um, but just yeah. to give you some context of kind of where I'm coming from here, because, you know, it's, a, it's an issue that everyone deals with, but perhaps this is something that I can offer as a unique perspective. So personally, you know, this one with my personal political beliefs and everything, I decided that I really need to work at an early stage of my career, um, work for both sides of the aisle and get to understand why this party thinks the way they do. It doesn't matter whether or not I agree with them. It's just a matter of principle and a matter of making those connections. So uh, I have done things like working for a city council, where you know it's um, perhaps in a in a part of a part of the country that definitely leans more one way or another. But they're not you know they're not partisan. You know they have these kinds of inclinations where they feel like oh we should be more moderate on certain issues. I've also worked uh, for. Uh, two members, a Democrat and a Republican uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, I worked for them and I had really, really amazing experiences for both. In uh, one stint on the Hill, uh, most recently I was working on the Hill during the spring of earlier this year, spring 2021. And I was actually in the Capitol complex when January 6th happened. And, and I mentioned that because it not only was a, a really scary event for me and for a lot of people, but I wanted to speak about some of the uh, issues that have come along with it, because I do think in many ways, it's a product of a lot of things that have gone wrong in this country, whether it's people 
doing shouting matches on YouTube videos, whether it's people posting things that really are for entertainment purposes for one side, but doesn't really do anything to bring people together. Like you've seen some of those thumbnails where, you know, you can have, I'll just use an example. If you're looking at, it doesn't matter if it's right wing or left wing, uh, left leaning, uh, but they usually have something, some kind of title in all caps, like, you know, um, this was so-and-so, um, destroys, you know, person a, and it's like, you know, that, okay. You might think that, but that's not really, that's not really very, uh, unifying to hear, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't believe we want to live in a country where we're destroying each other. I believe <laughs> we want to live in a country where we can have these civil debates and civil conversations. Um, and through that, um, the three things I want to kind of put out, if I could, um, outline some of the pillars uh, that I think should be addressed in political polarization. First is really, we have to have an honest conversation about the role of social media. And I know that there's different perspectives on this. Uh, if you do look broadly speaking, uh, Democrats really are concerned about the misinformation side of the thing from social media. Republicans uh, are arguing that um, certain viewpoints, especially conservative viewpoints are being censored. Yeah. It's probably a combination of those two, but also some other things that are really, that are beyond that. Um, it's the fact that there is no, it feels like there's no mechanism for people nowadays to hold back and say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be posting this comment. Maybe I shouldn't be saying these kinds of rude things and being able to just get away with it and you know pat myself on the back because I quote unquote own someone. Um, so um, it's a mixture, you know, social media behavior, but also really uh, just how dominant social media has become. I think this is quite a concern because it not obviously not only is a place where you can share a photo of a cute puppy and everything, but it's also a place where um, everything from, you know, you know, the sale of illegal drugs to, um, to un- for some really unfortunate other things, um, um, uh, other, other forms of polarization, like just, you know, this, this kind of malicious activity that can go on criminal activity, even there's a number of different th- things that uh, could also be exploited by foreign powers, like, you know, with uh, bots nowadays, where it's not necessarily that they pick one side or the other, but they uh, retweet or they promote a, a post that is perceived as very, very one side or the other to try to widen those divisions and try to show like, wow, a lot of people support Black Lives Matter or like left-wing groups. Or it's like, whoa, a lot of support for Blue Lives Matter and right-wing groups to try to widen that. It's very unfortunate. So we really need to have an honest conversation, examination of the role of social media in our lifetimes. The second thing really has to do with like an institutional sort of side of things, which is the leadership part. Um, I, I believe that in any party, there's going to be certain wings. There's going to be more of a radical wing Thing, uh, that's kind of a, my way or the highway, then there's people who, for political reason or for just personal uh, philosophy reasons, want to be more in the middle. Um, and we, we're not seeing that leadership of people saying, you know what, this is not the way Congress works. In Congress, we have all we all have our different districts and our different perspectives, but we need to do better in uh, showing by example and show that as a, as a member of Congress, I will be taking on roles of bringing people together, working with the other side, if I can, um, not engaging in rhetoric that is going to be divisive. I mean, some we've gone even to like personal attacks for crying out loud. I mean, that's, that's not the role of a leader. That's not the role. If there's a lot of people who, who, especially parents, I know that a lot of parents are like, well, I don't, I don't want my, my child to really, 
um, be exposed to that kind of quote unquote leadership. Well, let's not let's not tolerate that uh, anymore in our political system. So being able to hold our leaders accountable, be able to voice our our opinions about how divisive uh, our politics can be is definitely the other part. And that that I think kind of corresponds to leadership in both parties and their ability um, to to rein people together and to try to work out and say, all right, calm down, guys. It's all it's okay. If we lose a seat, it's not the end of the world. Um, but the last thing I, I would say is kind of branching from what I what I've said earlier about a bit about my background and where I'm coming from. It, it really it, it sounds especially as a political science person, I think anyone who's listening knows that I'm very much interested in politics. There's <laughs> no, no no secret there. But I also believe it's a responsibility for people to enjoy the, the non-political things and to keep them non-political. That includes going uh, that sports game. Uh, that includes going to a birthday party or hanging out with your friends. These are the things that make us you know, unique, not just as individuals, but we also have fun and we have this sort of happiness that you, you just can't get from, from anywhere else. So let's cherish that. Let's not try to bring politics everywhere we go. It's just really, really disturbing to see how people really don't have a sense of personal responsibility on this aspect. And they think that everyone has to think like them and everyone's got to be on one side or the other. When in fact, the best way I think to engage in politics is to understand that balance and to understand that politics isn't everything and that we will win elections. We will lose elections. It's just the way democracy is. Unless you live in the CCP, otherwise uh, you really don't have a choice. Um, but we, in in, mo- in other developed countries and democracies, um, you do have a choice. And uh, the best way to go about it, I think, is to recognize uh, the uh, the imperfections of politics and to appreciate all the other things in life, because uh, I think that will bring a lot more happiness, a lot more joy to our societies in a very divisive political environment. I really like that last one. Uh, I yeah, I agree. First of all, I think it's a good thing that we have that people have different perspectives. It would be concerning to me if everyone had the exact same perspective on on anything. I think that there, there, it's good that there's diversity, and I agree with you that it's important to remember that although we might disagree with people on some things, there's a lot of things that we enjoy and and agree with people on. Um, and I think I try to remind myself, like if I find there's a view that someone that, that I disagree with someone on, I try to remind myself that like, at the end of the day, like we both want the same thing, right? We both right. want, you know, to, to make people happier, to make the world better. We just have different perspectives on how to get there. So I find that helpful. Just reminding myself of that, you know, no one wants Generally speaking, no one wants the world to end up in a bad place. Sure, that's right. Uh, I I agree. If I could just add one quick thing, yeah. yeah. When, when we meet someone we've never met for first time, we don't know where that person comes from. You know, like I, you can meet someone. That person maybe is. I'm just saying as an example, maybe it comes from a generation from generations of union workers or something. Yeah. They, they they feel a certain way about unions, or you meet someone who uh, is you know whose father was a Wall Street banker, you know, and so they they feel one way about uh, about the about the regulation of the financial industry. So uh, my my point is, when we meet someone, we have to 
we, we can't uh, make these uh, quick assumptions about someone. And, yeah. uh, and oftentimes, in fact, we actually can get a feel of someone within a few seconds. Uh, but to uh, just understand why people think the way they are, um, especially when you first meet them, is is incredibly important. And I, I can't tell you how many times I meet someone and uh, I may have thought, wow, this person is coming from this background, that background. Uh, I'm curious to know more. I'm curious to know why they think this way. And if we don't agree, that's okay. And as long as we recognize that we're all unique in, in different ways. We do, we are egalitarian in a lot of other ways. Um, and especially on a principle level, I do believe that you know, free speech is egalitarian that should apply to uh, everyone in the world, ideally. Um, but to have that um, openness and to understand that you, everyone also represents their own beliefs to some degree. And so when I say that, I mean, you know, if someone acts in a crazy way, it's not going to make their beliefs and their and whatever organizations or affiliations they they are aligned to look very good um so also think of that too uh for for those who might consider um not going down the civility path i do believe the civility path is the best way to go no matter no matter where you're from no matter what kind of beliefs you have i remember that you you mentioned you were actually at the capitol on mm. january 6th yes. you're the first person i've ever met he was uh, there uh or close to it. Can you tell me, do you mind telling me a little bit sure. about the experience? Absolutely. So uh, I can't reveal every single detail. Obviously, there's like confidentiality is really subjective. So I kind of just uh, make my own decision on what I can reveal in public when I can't, but I'll do my best. Yeah, no problem. Um, but don't, don't, I, I will don't feel obligated to share anything that you're hesitant to. Sure. No, no worries. Um, you know, the general feeling is when, when you're in that situation, you, you number one, you realize you have limited information, you know, cause when you're in an emergency situation, you, you have to respond to what you can see, what you can hear. And I felt very, uh, very lost, very confused because I didn't know what was happening. We knew that there was going to be a, a demonstration of some kind outside. Yeah. Um, but when, uh, when I got the first evacuation, I was evacuated twice the first time, was when I heard that there was a bomb that was outside the RNC building. I was on the house side and the house side being very, very close to the RNC, RNC headquarters. That was, that was the first thing. I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's the first thing you think about. And then, then, and then after some time, when you kind of get a bit of an all clear, then you, then you get evacuated second time. And the second time I thought, well, what I heard was there was an intruder in the building. You know, and when you have this this combination of these things where you have to react really quickly, um, and to and to be stay stay calm at the same time, you know, follow directions. So Capitol Police, if I just may say, so Capitol Police was absolutely very professional as much as they could, especially the frontline officers. You know, the ones who had to be right up front and to uh, help direct people to get to get to safety. And uh, there were officers obviously involved who, who helped myself and my office get to safety. And I couldn't thank them more for what they did. Um, and I felt after, after the whole event, you know, throughout this, I was in lockdown for several hours. I got almost so late. I was, but I remember turning on that C-SPAN uh, on TV and I saw that the electoral uh, count w- resumed. I, I felt, all of a sudden, like a quick, like boost of confidence in the electoral process and our democracy, because I realized that despite this disruption, our members of Congress were still able to make it back and to resume from where they left off. And knowing that this is the resiliency of American uh, representative democracy. Uh, but in the wake of that, I I felt like it was a desecration of our democracy. I felt that there were people who didn't understand what it's like 
when you uh, when when Democrat lose an election because that's as like I said earlier we have to know how to win and lose elections. It's going to happen in our lifetimes when when the, someone we support uh, is not going to or a party we support is not going to win elections. It happens, and I I share share a little bit about the experience because. As someone, you know, I've come in a unique situation because I I was an intern. So, you know, if you're a member or a staffer, you're in a different scenario because you also have to work with, you know, the the parties that you work for and uh, just the unique positions that they they're what they say um, can differ a lot from my experience because I'm I can be a bit more freelance with what what I can speak since I don't work for the for the U.S. Congress anymore. Uh, but I re- I emphasize some of the some of the things I said earlier, but also. I share a bit about my experience on the Capitol because I don't want I don't want this to ever happen to any any country's legislature any any sort of institution democracy it, it's it's awful I I was I was an intern when two very it was a tale of two internships let's just say one it was in the wake of January six you know with the National Guard with the the big ugly fence ugliest fence I've ever seen in my life by the way um and in 2019 summer 2019 when I was giving tours to constituents you know to notice that that huge difference in the environment in the same building uh, is what struck me and I, I want to uh, share with people my message that civility really is is something that has to be of a value you know it has it's lived by every single day you you breathe it you live it you have to live it and every single person in in our society can play a role uh, i don't think this is just like a you know a january 6 event where you know there's only members of con- there were members of congress of all there were the rioters and those that are involved um, there are ways that we can move forward and i want to bring that message of unity to people and know and tell them that the, what happened on January 6th was was absolute travesty. It's no question about it. And there's there's a lot of there's a lot still a lot of work ahead of us uh, when it comes to this kind of healing and unity. However, I I'm cautiously op- optimistic because uh, I believe that the vast majority of people are have have an, an innate nature of goodness and that goodness will prevail. And that we will get to a point where our political environment is going to be better than the ones that we're living in now. Because that's that's what I want to give to my children and grandchildren. I'm sure that's the, maybe the case for a lot of people. Uh, but we need to pull together. We need to have hope and faith in our institutions and um, and our current and future leaders. Let's have those debates. Let's have those uh, conversations that matter. And we will get to that point where we can look back on that day. I look back on that day. And say thank goodness. Hopefully, we can say thank goodness we did all of this work and everything, so that we can have a better country and a better society for future generations to come. Two questions now I have about your podcast. Mm-hmm. One I mentioned earlier. I want to know what your advice is for getting consistency around putting one out <laughs> weekly. And then, second, I'm curious if you if you have a favorite of the of the ones you've recorded and put out so far. Absolutely. Well, on the first question, well, uh, it is. It, I, I just want to say, oh, persistence, right? Uh, and it really is the 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 crux of it. Uh, and knowing that uh, before you get into uh, that world of podcasting, you understand that okay, this is this is going to be a commitment. You know, you, you got to know what you're in for. But in terms of a logistical side of things, I think it's really about the planning part. You know, always thinking about 
what the next month or the the next two months is going to look like. Because that way, when you do the pre-recording, you do the editing, everything. If you when you have a bit of a cushion, so to speak, when you pre-record it and you've edited those episodes and you realize, oh gosh, I have, I have a two-week cushion, it feels a lot better. And I've been in those situations where I've had to do some last-minute recording edits the day before. It's not the most comfortable feeling out there. Um, and, and so I would say persistence, but also just the planning part you know, and have a consistent planning schedule. If you know you're going on a trip somewhere, you know, have an episode or two ready just so you can uh, release that. Uh, and I'm talking about from a weekly show. Uh, I think that's a good way to start. Uh, some people, you know, have other ways. Some people do it twice a month, like once every two weeks, start from wherever uh, you feel is most comfortable. And then always go like more on the additive side of things. So if you start off with two episodes per month, it's better to go from two episodes per month to four episodes per month. If you decide to do so rather than the other way around, uh, it just doesn't, it's not the best look for the podcast because then it looks like, Oh, well either has less content to share or he maybe just not as committed anymore. So, yeah. uh, but that's number one. Uh, number two is I use that's your favorite episode from the, yeah. the show. Ooh, that's a, that's a hard one. You know, I got to say, you don't have to pick, but if, if one oh, comes okay. to mind, yeah, sure. Sure. Um, one of my favorite ones is the one I did a holiday special in December, 2020. So what I did was I asked uh, some people, some people I knew, some people I didn't know so well, I asked them to record, uh, their holiday experiences and what they, how they view the holidays, what it means to, for them. And you know, it's not super duper consistent with my main theme of friends and fellow citizens, but still it's uh, it's it's a good break no one's it was a good break for me and for everybody else to you know just take some time because i mentioned earlier i don't want it to be all politics every all 52 weeks in a year you need to have a mixture and i wanted to take a bit of a break because it's it's christmas time you know santa claus is here and everything he doesn't need to hear about you know, the founders <laughs> and everything uh, <laughs> he's here to deliver toys and all that um but i i i loved that episode because it felt like you know even though it was obviously pre-recorded and everything but i was able to piece them together um just that have that feeling that there were other uh, listeners, you know, voicing their uh, experiences about the holidays and uh, expressing their appreciation for the content that we we've had on the show. That kind of interactive experience is what keeps me going. And it's the listeners and the people who listen to it. I, I think about them every single day uh, and I try to make uh, the best content I can for those listeners. And the holiday special really was kind of an, a good symbol of this uh, small camaraderie, but uh, hopefully growing camaraderie as we kind of move along, we grow the show and we have more listeners on board. Last, last uh, thing I want to ask you about as we only have a few minutes left, you did a Ted talk like six years ago or something, I think. Yes. Yeah. What, what was that? I know it was a while ago, but I'm just curious, what was that experience like? And um, I know I saw it was on time management Yes, that's um, right. I'm curious, are you still interested in time management? <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm always interested in time management, whether it's podcasting, whether it's uh, the daily schedule. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, I've, I've become good friends with it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I hope to keep it that way. Uh, but I'm glad you asked about that. Uh, that was a really interesting time because it was really the first time I've done something like that. You know, this is kind of, I've done public speaking before, but not in like a recorded format where I've had to put together a presentation. We actually did some rehearsals before. So it wasn't the first time I did it, which is 
actually kind of a good thing. <laughs> but it it taught me a lot about uh, well, the two things. Uh, number one, taught me a lot about public speaking, like what it takes to pre- prepare a presentation, uh, to know how to address the audience and how to have everything from correct posture to uh, the right kind of slides, you know, so that uh, you don't have too much text on them, things like that. But largely on the time management part. I really do think that besides the logistics, I really wanted to convey that message that time management is also a means to create a story and understand maybe when we see it as like a way to write an autobiography or to document our experiences, well, we might, you know, cherish time a little bit more. It's like, oh, instead of maybe seeing the schedule as like, okay, to do, to do, to do, to do, it's now, uh, okay, this is, this is a new day. I'm going to cherish all the 24 hours today and I'm going to, have a unique day that's that's like nothing else uh, that's like no other day i've ever had um and so i just wanted to kind of change a bit of that mentality into a storytelling because everyone loves stories so it's also kind of easy to uh, explain that but uh, I, I i still think about that i had a, a um I, that's where i got my deep voice from uh, my deep voice started getting deep around that time so <laughs> i know that uh, that's the, one of the last recordings people will ever hear of me having n- not as deep of a voice <laughs> <laughs> but it was a, a wonderful experience and i'm so grateful to the people at the tedx youth at feihs who put that all together and gave me that opportunity to really pub- have my first publication then fast forward six years later then i'll then i have uh, an audio recording of myself every single week so <laughs> <laughs> that's how that's kind of the um the, the the distance that i've tried to to match up with and it's been it's been wonderful cool do you still view it as a as a story and where did you get that idea from did you come up with it yourself or do you remember seeing it somewhere mm-hmm. i it just came from I'm going to say it only honestly just came from myself because I just feel like when I read, when I learned stories and my, the title of that presentation is once upon a time. And I've always wondered why stories always a lot of, especially a lot of fairy tale stories, kids stories. And they, they always start off as something like that. Yeah. And I just thought, Oh, first of all, that's a great title. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll include that. Uh, but I thought, Oh, want a time and story where, you know, where's the connection here? <laughs> Cause everyone wants to think of that time. And when we think of when we always, say like oh i had a great time with someone you include a story in there if you say i had a great story with someone that that might change a little bit in terms of how you view your interactions with uh, others and with your environment um, so I, I would say yeah it was just flashing flashback to those kids stories and uh there's there's still much much easier to read than the kinds of books i had to read in grad school so um, that's my way to escape from uh the textbooks and a little bit and to go go simpler and think about um, time as a means to write our own stories. And hopefully there are lots of other great ones out there that I'd love to hear about. Very cool. Well, thank you, Sherman, for, uh, for signing up for the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was great meeting you. You're welcome back anytime to chat. Thank about you so much. Topic. <laughs> um, and I will, I'll put a link uh, to your podcast in the episode description. So for anyone listening, uh, they can check out your podcast um and last as a small thank you for coming on the podcast i'm going to be donating just twenty dollars uh to a charity of your choice do you have one in mind right now or you can uh you can email me later if you 
You know, uh, I've got a few candidates in mind. I'll I'll narrow it down to one and I'll I'll send it to you. Okay, <laughs> sounds um, good. But I really uh, I just want to if I and say thank you so much, Adam, for having me. This has been a really great opportunity. I'm glad we're able to touch upon a lot, lot number of different subjects, and uh, I hope that this was a value to you and to your audience. And I love uh, the the way that you, you're conducting these podcast episodes, I think it's so unique and very interactive and uh, probably the most uh, welcoming uh, podcast I've ever been on just because of the fact that you, the, uh, the audience can come in and say, Hey, I love to answer this question. Uh, you know, so uh, I, I want to thank you so much for having me again. Really appreciate it. No problem. It's very nice of you to say, I'm glad you enjoyed it too. And as I said, you're welcome back uh, anytime. And, Apologies again for for rescheduling it at the last minute, but I'm so glad uh, you were able to meet now. So thank you. Not not a problem. It's uh it's it's totally fine. Uh, that's that's what Outlook Calendar is good for. Uh, you get to rearrange and everything, and it's good to also be a bit more freelance as well because that way you can work around people's schedules in whatever capacities. Great. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks again, and uh, best mm-hmm. of luck with your podcast. And uh, hope to chat again soon. Sounds good, Adam. You take care. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye. 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 Thanks again for tuning in to Can I Ask You a Question? If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left a rating on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening from so that more people like you can discover it. Also, it'd be super helpful if you'd be willing to leave some feedback on any ideas you have for improving future conversations using the link in this episode's description. Thanks again and see you next time.